What is going on, Solo fam? My name is John Solo. Welcome to another episode of the Messed Up Origins podcast, the show where I change the way you think about the stories you were told during childhood by revealing their disturbing source material. Sometimes that source material comes in the form of a centuries-old storybook, but today we aren't so lucky. Today we're discussing the bizarre and troubling details behind the arrest of the real John Henry. For those who missed our recent episode about John Henry and have never heard his ballad before, the short version of this legend is that he was an African-American slave who sacrificed his life to prove that he could work more efficiently than the new steam engine. And as a result, he ensured that his fellow workers received the pay they were promised. Only there's a much darker truth to that already dark story. The man believed to be the real John Henry was a recently freed slave who was turned penitentiary inmate as the result of a beyond corrupt judicial system down in Confederate America. For the petty crime of shoplifting, he was sentenced to 10 years in the Virginia State Penitentiary, where he and hundreds of other inmates were rented out to railroad companies, then forced to work in dangerous and deadly conditions for no pay whatsoever. Considering how embarrassingly little progress our country has made on this particular issue in the last 100 years, it seems like a story that we could all benefit from hearing, so we're just going to jump into it. Brace yourself for the messed up true story of John Henry's arrest. Chapter 1. After the War before we get into the details of John Henry's truly heinous crime of shoplifting, I think it'd be a good idea to set the scene so you have the required context. Now, this tragedy starts sometime after the Civil War ended on April 6th, 1865. For reasons that historians still aren't totally sure about, John Henry was living in Prince George County, Virginia at this time. Some believe he may have been a Union soldier that lingered in the area after the war, but his name doesn't appear in the military records of the U.S. colored troops. And we know from his prison records that he was only 5'1 and just 18 years old by the war's end, so it's likely that he wasn't allowed to be a soldier due to his age and short stature. I know we already talked about it in the last episode, but how wild is it that all of John Henry's legends describe him as this juggernaut of a human being, when in reality he would have been considered short even for that time? I think that says something about his personality and the content of his character. An alternate theory suggests he could have been a cook for the Union camp, worked as a day laborer, lined track for the U.S. military railroad, or even harvested bones for the burial corps. Call me crazy, but I think that last job would have been sort of fun. It'd be like when they dug up Billy Bats and Goodfellas. Uh, here's a leg. It's a wing. <laughs> what do you like, the leg or the wing, Henry? Anyway, regardless of his reasons for being there, John Henry and thousands of other black men and women chose to stick around Prince George County after the war ended. And this agitated both the local white population and those in political power who still believed that Henry and anyone who looked like him should be considered property. The problem was that for Virginia to be accepted into the newly reformed United States and receive any benefits at all from the federal government, they had to consent to the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. Now, there's some people out there who believe, or at least like to claim during arguments on Twitter, that this was the end of oppression here in America. The slaves were now freed and allowed to live their lives however they wanted, but those people are just straight up wrong. I mean, sure, President Lincoln proposed limited suffrage for the African-American community, but he was shot in the head by John Wilkes Booth only a few days later, and his successor, Andrew Johnson, felt that certain powers should be left to the state government. Under his reconstruction policies, the former Confederate states were required to uphold the abolition of slavery, swear loyalty to the Union, and pay off their war Debt. But beyond those limitations, the states were pretty much given free reign to rebuild their own governments, and this allowed for some massive loopholes to be exploited. So roughly a year after the war's end, in April of 1866, when John Henry committed the horrendous crime of shoplifting from a tiny little store called Wiseman's Grocery, he became the victim of thinly veiled state policy that was designed to keep blacks under the control of those with money, influence, and power. 
Chapter 2. The Freedmen's Bureau Now to fully understand how John Henry could have possibly been sent to prison for 10 years for what, all sarcasm aside, is a petty crime, we have to know a little more about how the justice system operated in post-Civil War Virginia. Spoiler alert, it's pretty fucking racist. It starts with the establishment of the ironically named Freedmen's Bureau. I say ironically because despite being created to help former slaves and poor white people in the post-Civil War South, it did an awful lot to hurt them. Now, I do want to make it clear that the Bureau wasn't all bad, and just because someone worked for them doesn't automatically make them a bad person, but there was a combination of factors that led to it ultimately becoming corrupt and failing at its intended purpose. One, there was a massive lack of both funding and personnel, not to mention that because it was overseen by the War Department, many of those personnel were former Confederate soldiers. Number two, never before in history had any government taken responsibility for such a huge refugee population, so they had to figure out the best way of handling that. In number three, the Bureau was strongly opposed by white Southerners and even the President Andrew Johnson, who I'm starting not to like. That last point is extremely important. The Freedmen's Bureau had not one, but two powerful enemies who were willing to do whatever it took to make them fail. On the administrative side, you have the goddamn President, who would do everything in his power to deprive the Bureau of the resources that would lead to its success. Not only did he veto legislation that would give the Bureau more funding and power, but he also fired employees who he felt were too sympathetic to blacks. And any agents who were essentially social workers that managed to hide their sympathy while still working diligently to help those in need were often harassed and even assaulted by white Southerners and were the regular targets of the Ku Klux Klan. Despite all this, the Bureau did have some successes across the states. It fed millions of people, built hospitals, negotiated labor contracts for ex-slaves, and settled labor disputes. It also helped former slaves legalize marriages and locate lost relatives, and it assisted black veterans. Now, now keep all those good deeds in mind while I tell you the rest of this story, because if you're anything like me, it's gonna infuriate you. Because while there were good, honest, hardworking agents at the Freedmen's Bureau, the one who arrested John Henry and handled his case was not one of them. Charles H. Byrd was a former Union Lieutenant who was hired as the Assistant Commissioner at the Bureau for Prince George County. You would think that someone who fought for the Union would be on John Henry's side, but Byrd's time in the service was pretty unusual. For one, he didn't volunteer, he was drafted. Two, the original soldiers and the company he oversaw almost all refused to re-enlist after the required service of 90 days while the rest of the soldiers in the regiment stayed. I hate to make assumptions, but that's gotta say something about either Byrd's personality or leadership style, doesn't it? In three, and this is the big one, during his time in the army, Byrd suffered a seriously disfiguring and debilitating injury when a musket ball was embedded four inches deep into his skull. The real messed up part about that is the Confederate soldiers who were attacking his company were at a range where only their cannons were effective, so there's a good chance that Bird was shot by one of his own men. Whether it was an accident or someone was just sick and tired of his bullshit, we'll never know. It only gets worse from here though. Bird was abandoned by his own men and rescued by the Confederates who held him in their prison for seven months with an open wound in his head that regularly oozed blood and pus. Don't you just love that word? Ooze. It's even better than moist in my opinion. It wasn't until the Union made a special request for his exchange that he was returned to his allies and doctors finally took a look at him. It took them days of probing and making the hole even larger to get most of the ball's fragments out of his skull and Bird even reported that a tiny piece of his brain fell out with the last incision. Babe, do we have any Jello? I suddenly got this craving for Jello. Surprisingly soon after his surgeries, Bird was declared fit for work and rejoined his regiment. Though as you might expect, he was a very different person after this experience. He may not have been 
very likable before, but now he had PTSD from being shot in the head and lead poisoning from the musket ball left him with the inability to focus and short-term memory loss. Not to mention the anger and bitterness that he would have about the situation and him now being deformed. Yeah, Andrew Johnson had no problem with this guy being an agent, but God forbid you feel a little bad for the former slaves and you're fired. Chapter three, the black codes. This may be controversial, but at this point, I think you're allowed to have some sympathy for Charles Byrd. What he went through, I may wish on my worst enemy, but nobody else. That being said, the way this guy handled his responsibilities as an agent of the Freedmen's Bureau makes him an absolute bottom of the barrel piece of shit scumbag. Instead of doing literally anything at all to help the newly freed slaves integrate themselves in the community, he only used his authority to protect the white folks they worked for. Whenever there was a protest over unfair wages or labor conditions, he would show up with a regiment of soldiers and threatened to either arrest or assault and arrest anyone protesting. The local newspapers also accused him of renting out the federally controlled land he owned to blacks at unfairly high prices. But what may be his greatest offense is that he would act as the judge and jury of any criminal cases involving the black community, meaning the fates of the accused were entirely up to him. A man who, I just want to reiterate, had a goddamn hole in his head. And to make it even worse, because yes, it gets even worse, Bird was a heavy-handed enforcer of the black codes a special set of laws that were supposedly made to crack down on crime, but in reality limited the freedoms of black people so much that they could be arrested just for going about their daily lives. For example, blacks were not allowed to testify against whites unless they were defending themselves. Vagrancy was now prohibited, which was defined as the flooding of black men and women into public spaces. In other words, if too many black folks were in a place like the grocery store at the same time, then they could be arrested and charged with a crime, and oftentimes were sentenced to work on a plantation for no pay as their punishment. Another messed up law was that black people couldn't display an air of satisfaction, meaning they couldn't publicly talk about being happy the Civil War was over and that they were free, because if we know anything about the Confederates, it's that they were sore losers. African Americans also weren't allowed to not be employed, but the only positions being offered to them were year-long contracts for hard labor jobs where they received little pay. What's extra terrible about that one is that if any of them left their contracts early, then they had to give up all the money they earned so far, and they would be arrested, which often resulted in them being forced into unpaid labor as a punishment. And get this, in South Carolina, there were laws that prohibited blacks from having any job other than farmer or servant unless they paid an annual tax of 10 to $100. And if you were one of the good folks who wanted to actually pay your black employees a fair wage, there were laws in many Southern states to punish you too. Last but not least, under the black codes, punishments for property crimes increased dramatically. Horse thieves could be hanged, being inside someone's house without an invitation was proof of burglary whether you had goods in your hands or not, and stealing goods valued at more than $20 was now punishable with five to 10 years in prison instead of one to five. So when Byrd arrested John Henry on that fateful day in April of 1866, he was already doomed. There was no question if he was going to go to prison. He just didn't know for how long. Chapter four, crime and punishment. It was a brief glimmer of hope though when the Supreme Court and Congress got more involved in how the South was handling its judicial process. On April 3rd of 1866, the courts ruled that any arrests made under the black codes were unconstitutional, and so prisoners had to be turned over to county officials instead of agents like Charles Byrd. Then, just six days later, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 despite President Johnson's veto, making it a crime for state officials to subject anyone to different punishment, pains, or penalties by reason of his color 
meaning that the county sheriffs, deputies, and judges that the aforementioned accused were being turned over to could be arrested for enforcing the black codes against suspects held in custody. Like I said, it's a glimmer of hope, but unfortunately the federal courts couldn't retry every case that happened that year and the county officials in the South weren't necessarily any less bigoted than Charles Burr. So there were still folks like John Henry that had the cards stacked against them. So much so that when Wiseman, the man who owned the grocery store that Henry had stolen from, only had the evidence to make his charges a misdemeanor instead of a felony, the judge gave him six additional months to gather more evidence. And this was after Henry had already spent six months in the Richmond jail just waiting for his trial. When the time finally came for him to be sentenced, more than a year after being arrested, the crime he was being charged for was completely different than what actually happened. They had manipulated the details of the case so that instead of Henry shoplifting an item worth only a few cents from Wiseman's store in broad daylight, he was being accused of housebreak and larceny. These charges carried a maximum sentence of 10 years in the state prison, and that's what 21-year-old John Henry got. And if you watched my last video on John Henry, then you know what he spent his time in prison doing. He and hundreds of other inmates served as a cheap labor option for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway, who forced them to work in incredibly dangerous and toxic conditions that would ultimately lead to about half of them dying from various lung conditions that strangled them slowly from the inside. So as you can see, the abolishing of slavery didn't necessarily mean the end of slavery. The implementation of those black codes wasn't just to punish black people, but specifically to keep them in chains and available as a cheap labor force for as long as possible. And one can easily argue that those practices are still being used to this day to keep the private prison industry afloat. There is a long, dark, and complicated history behind the oppression of black Americans, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, everything we talked about today happened within just a few years of the Civil War ending. We haven't even touched on Jim Crow laws, redlining, separate but equal policy, and while there may not be any official legislation left that treats blacks as second-class citizens, there are countless families in our country that are still feeling the effects of systemic oppression. And stories like John Henry's are a grounding reminder that our country still has some work to do. But on that kind of depressing note, I'm going to wrap this episode up solo fam. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. I hope you found it entertaining and a little bit enlightening. If you enjoyed it and want to hear more content like it, I've got good news. All you have to do is hit the follow button. We upload three times a week. Mondays and Wednesdays are remastered episodes like this one. And Fridays, we poured over that week's YouTube video. Speaking of, if you want to enjoy this same content with visual aids and custom-made artwork, check out my YouTube channel. It's just called John Solo. These classic episodes have worse music and no sound effects, but the art and historic pictures kind of balance out the presentation. Anyway, I'll see you again this Wednesday with another new episode of the podcast. Until then, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. <laughs>